You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. In 1871, the Great Five of Chicago almost ruined the life of Horatio and Anna Spafford. A year earlier, they lost their son, and the Great Fire destroyed their business, leaving them destitute and without anything. Two years later, Horatio sent his wife Anna and their four daughters across the sea to Europe to start a new life for the family. Horatio stayed behind because he had some business to attend to. And some months later, Horatio received a telegram saying, saved alone, from his wife. On their journey to Europe, the ship that Horatio, uh, that Anna and her four kids were on had collided with another vessel and the ship that they were on sank very quickly to the bottom of the ocean, the four daughters dying in the process and Anna just keeping her own life. So when Horatio heard this news, he got on a boat to be reunited with his wife, grieving all the way, and as he came to the spot where the ship sank to the bottom of the ocean, he wrote these words which we sing almost every week. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, you can almost get the sense of that he's writing what he's seeing. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What, what is it that anchors a man who has lost everything? He's lost his business, he's lost his son, he's lost his four daughters now, and his wife has only just escaped, and now he's writing, it is well, it is well with my soul. And there's a, there's a part of me that knows the answer to this, because he writes the answer in the very next verse. This is what he says in the, the next verse. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Horatio knew that Jesus loved him. He knew that Christ had shed his own blood for his soul. He knew what was coming and he knew that he and his daughters would spend eternity with him. But I know that I know this and yet often there is such a big gap between what I know to be true and what I experience in the depths of my heart week to week. I don't know, maybe this is something that you feel too. That there have been moments this year where I've dragged myself to worship, knowing the great truths of Christianity, knowing that Jesus died for me on the cross, knowing that I'm saved and secured and adopted into the family, knowing that God is working all things for His good and my glory, and yet the only thing that I feel in my heart is this deep numbness because of the weightiness of the situations going on outside. Maybe you know this too. 
So what do you do when everything inside you feels broken and yet we were made to worship? What do you do when your mum dies or when you're diagnosed at cancer at 27? What do you do when the terminal diagnosis comes in or your child is stillborn? What happens then? What does worship look like in that moment? Because every single week, people come through our doors and we interact with people who are dying of of cancer, whose babies won't be born alive, who are feeling this deep blackness and darkness over them and feel lost and abandoned. What does worship look like then? What does worship look like in the dark? Psalm 22 has been an enormous comfort for me this year. And it almost always gets forgotten next to its much more famous brother, Psalm 23. These are the opening words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. And it's always interested me that Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 are back to back. Because in Psalm 22, he's crying out to God, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't sense this. It just feels lost and abandoned. And in Psalm 23, he's saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for the Lord is with me. And it just, it blows my mind that in one, he's crying out, God, where are you? And the next, he's saying, I fear no evil for you are with me. It reminds me again and again that we can bring our anguishes and our pains and our trials and afflictions to God because there's something in this that every time almost we miss, we jump over if we go too quickly. There's only one kind of person that can pray this kind of prayer. There's only one. Because he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the prayer of a Christian. In affliction. It's not someone who's distrusting and disbelieving in God. It's not someone who's doubting the existence of the Almighty. It's someone who's saying, God, I believe you exist and I know your promises, but right now it feels like you're not there. It feels like you're not keeping your promises. I know what the promises are. I know in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 that you said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But right now I feel abandoned and lost and in despair and everything seems broken. So what does worship look like then? There are some truths, some Biblically saturated, God-glorifying, soul-restoring truths that every single Christian needs to know, needs to cherish and hold on to in order to survive a season in the dark. Because the, the truth of the matter is that whether you're in it right at this moment or whether you're not there yet, Every single one of us will experience a season in the dark and therefore we need to know how to worship. And that's where I want to sit this morning. 
one of the things that is most common for us to experience when it feels like God has abandoned us, when it feels like His promises are not coming true, when it feels like everything that, that, that God is saying is, is maybe, I, I, I get it, but I'm just not feeling it. One of the, the easiest things for us to experience in affliction is that everything we're going through is utterly meaningless. It's not doing anything. It's not producing anything. And I get this. My mind gets drawn to the, the story of John the Baptist, which is surely one of the most tragic stories <clears throat> in the whole of the New Testament canon. See, Jesus said this about John the Baptist. That truly I tell you, among those born of women, which is every single one of us, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom is greater than he. But he's saying, of everyone born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. He's an incredible man, a godly man, a faithful man, someone who's ushering in the new kingdom. And yet how does John the Baptist die? Only a couple of chapters later, in verse 14, we see this man declared as the greatest of any born by a woman. Matthew 14 says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So Herod is sleeping with his brother's wife and John the Baptist, a godly man, a faithful man, comes up to him and says, Herod, you can't be sleeping with your brother's wife. So Herod grabs him, puts him in jail. And as a Christian, as someone who reads the New Testament, you know that God can just break people out of jail. You know that that can happen, that things can be, he can just be delivered. And so John's sitting there in jail, in chains, shackled. And some verses later, we discover a plot. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. As a sexual gift for his guests, he has his daughter-in-law, or rather his brother's daughter-in-law, dance for the guests and pleases them so much that he gives her whatever she asks. And she asks for John the Baptist's head on a plate. And I can just imagine John the Baptist in the prison, awaiting deliverance, trusting in God, filled with the Spirit, shackled as two men come in, one with a sword. And they say, you need to kneel down for we're about to chop off your head. And John says, what, what happened? Well, Herodias' daughter danced for the king. And she wanted your head. And as John kneels down, the thing going over his mind is that my life, my life for a dance. This great faithful man's life ends for a dance. 
And everything inside me wants to say, meaningless. It's meaningless. What is this producing? What is this leading towards? It's just nothing. Nothing is occurring because of the death of John the Baptist. This great man, what is it doing? It's not leading anywhere. It's not producing anything. It's not doing anything. And the only thing that refrains me from believing such is the constant, consistent message of the New Testament that every single moment in the path of obedience for the Christian is producing in us, for us, an eternal weight of glory. This seemingly meaningless irrational murder of John the Baptist is producing in him and for him an eternal weight of glory that he will receive because of that. Let me just read some of 2 Corinthians. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, Perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. If you ever want a description of what worship looks like, that just underline that. The grace that is reaching more and more people causes thanksgiving overflowing to the glory of God. It says, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. And what is unseen is eternal. There is a secret here for the Christian life that is worth cherishing, holding on to with every single morsel and might of our bodies. It's the secret to worshipping despite heavy affliction and not losing heart. But lest we think that Paul is just this ivory tower, naive theorist who is writing this from a pushy desk and has never really experienced suffering of any kind, then we need to know the surrounding scriptures so we can get a glimpse and a glance at the kind of person that Paul is. See, in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians that opens the book, Paul delivers to the church in Corinth an understanding of what he's going through. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's saying, I wanted to die. The burdens, the pressures that was on me were so heavy that I would rather be dead right now. I despaired of life itself. I would rather be in the pit than alive. That's the context of this. But even then, we get a little more from Paul in verse 7 to 9. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And you know how fragile jars of clay are to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. So what is Paul experiencing right now? He is hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. That's the Paul that's writing this to us this morning. And it's interesting to, to me, maybe. Let me, let me geek out for a moment. When it says in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. The, the verb, the Greek word that's used for wasting away only is used six other times in the New Testament. It occurs in Luke chapter 13. Maybe. <laughs> it's, not, it's not coming. That's all right. So let me, let me just go to Luke chapter 13. Oh, maybe it's Luke 16. Anyway, we'll get it on the screen in a second. But he's saying that don't, don't lay up for yourself truths and, and, and material possessions on the earth where moths come and eat them. That's the context, that there are things that are coming to eat them. Same word, wasting away. And later on in Revelations 8 and Revelations 11, it says similar things. It's saying that there are things that are going to come and destroy them. In Revelation 8, it's talking about ships coming down. There we go, Revelation 8. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. There's something coming to plunder the ships. Same word, wasting away. And Revelations 11. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, the wrath of God. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Destroying, same word, wasting away. So Paul is saying that there is something going on that is destroying my body, though my outer self my brains, my body, my liver, my kidneys, my bones is being destroyed. We are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. There is something eating away at Paul, something destroying him, shipwrecking him, and yet he's being renewed day by day. Whether it's from the fallen world all around him, whether it's from fallen mankind around him. Paul is being destroyed. 
And so why am I bringing attention to this? Why am I wanting to focus so much on the fact that Paul is being destroyed? It's because you need to know that when Paul writes these words, which have so much hope in them, that he's not writing them from a desk, he's writing them from the pit, he's writing them from the dark, and he's saying, I know what I'm experiencing, this darkness, this depth, this brokenness, and yet I do not lose hope. Even though my outer body wastes away day by day, inwardly I am being renewed. Even in this situation, there is hope. What is the hope? What is the secret? Let me read 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Otherwise, otherwise it might be said is that for our light and momentary troubles are achieving us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension and comparison. When every bone in our body wants to cry out, it's meaningless, this is meaningless. Paul says it's not meaningless. It's doing something in us and for us. It's producing something. Even though our bodies are being destroyed, wasting away, being eaten away, it's not meaningless. It's producing in us an eternal weight of glory. There is a promise here in affliction when we're tempted to think that it's not doing anything, it's utterly meaningless, that this sorrow that we feel and the brokenness that we feel is not doing anything. Paul says it's doing something, it's producing something. It's what John Piper says. He says, not only is all our affliction light, not only is it all momentary compared to eternity and what awaits us there, every single moment of it in the path of obedience is meaningful. It has meaning. It's doing something in us and for us. And we can't see it. That's the problem. Because if we look to the situations that we're in, then the hopelessness and the darkness and the despair and the brokenness starts rising in us and we start saying meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. And Paul says, don't look there. That's not where we're meant to be looking. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. One of the greatest tricks that our minds play on us is that this body is all we have. And yet we're here for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, maybe at best. And yet in light of eternity and what awaits us there, he's saying, look to that. Look to what's being stored up for us there. Look to what is happening there. And therefore do not lose hope. Look to what is unseen. Look to the promises of God that, like Romans 8, 28, All things work together for the good of those who love Him. For those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. It's doing something in us. We may not see it, we may not feel it, but we can trust it. 
It's preparing something in us. It's working something in us. It's producing something in us, a peculiar kind of glory that we will receive because of the suffering, affliction, and brokenness that we're experiencing right in this moment. So when your mum dies, when you're diagnosed with cancer at 27, when your family is falling apart, when the terminal diagnosis comes in, don't say it's meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's doing something. It's producing an eternal weight of glory. But maybe you're feeling right now, okay, great. I've got an eternal weight of glory to look forward to, but what about right now? Because it's right now that I feel abandoned and lost and without hope and without a promise. And what do I do now? Okay, I've got this thing coming for me. I, I can look towards what's unseen, but I'm not looking to what's seen. But right now it just feels like these waves are so powerful. They're overcoming. And if I don't do something right now, it feels like I'm going to drown. And the psalmist, Psalm, Psalm 22 becomes mine. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing me? I cry out to you and you're not there. You need to know the other person who said these words because the psalmist was not the only one. Matthew chapter 27 says this, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself knew what it was like to experience darkness and brokenness and worship. You are not alone. Jesus cries this out from the hill called the skull, Golgotha, where he cries out and says, I feel abandoned. And then what happens next? He goes to the cross. He gets buried in a Roman tomb and he enters the darkness and defeats it. Jesus not only knew the darkness but defeated it so that every single person who knows him, who trusts him, who believes in him, even though it may feel like the darkness is overwhelming. Maybe it feels like the world is alienating and overpowering. Jesus says, for every single person who trusts me, who follows me, who follows after me, I am in this with you. I am in the darkness, for I have defeated it. It's not about what's seen in our bodies. It's what about Jesus has done for us. That's why Horatio Spafford could come around to the place of his daughter's death where he cries out, it is well as well with my soul. Why can he do that? Because of these words. Where he says in verse 2, not that one, next one. Anyway, he cries out, let this blessed assurance control. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. When everything seems like loss, when everything seems like disaster, when it seems like darkness has overcome him, 
Horatio Spafford, he calls to mind what Christ has done on the cross. He says, I'm not going to look at what is seen. I'm not going to look at the ship being shipwrecked. I'm going to look to Christ and therefore be fulfilled and filled with hope. And therefore I will not lose heart. That's the promise of the gospel. See, I think it's really interesting, Paul's two statements in 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 4. Because in, in the first one he says, I was burdened beyond what I could bear and I despaired of life itself. And in the second, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. What's the difference? It's because in the four chapters, Paul has been applying the gospel to his heart. He's been reminded and being filled with the presence of Jesus and knowing, I know Jesus has shed his own blood for my soul and therefore, even in the midst of despair and brokenness and darkness, when everything feels like it's falling apart, I will not lose heart. That's the promise to every single Christian. Christ has shed his own blood for our soul so that every single person who knows Jesus, who trusts Jesus, who follows Jesus, who worships Jesus, will not be alone, but is being made new day by day, is being restored, even though our outer bodies are wasting away, are being eaten by moss, being shipwrecked and destroyed by great fire. There is redemption and restoration through Christ. That's the great hope of the gospel. That even though this present situation is too much to bear, there is something in eternity waiting for me that is beyond all comparison. And in the meantime, what do we do? We call to mind that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory and therefore we do not look to what is seen but what is unseen. Here's what I want to do, church. I know that our natural disposition is to suppress the emotions that we feel, to suppress the burdens that we experience and to not to talk about what's going on really. And so we come to church and we worship Him and we raise our hands and we clap and we, we never actually share what's going on. What does worship look like for us? And I want to have a space right now where we can worship. Second Corinthians 6, it has this phrase, says that Christians are to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Weeping yet knowing the truths of Christ. Destroyed but not losing hope. We want to create a space for that. So here's what we're going to do. Remain in your seats or move around. Rodney and the band, they're going to play a song for us. And we encourage you not to sing. Just sit and think and weep and cry with your family. And there's going to be people over the side who are available to pray with you, to cry with you, to weep with you to suffer with you, to bear your burdens, to bear your afflictions with you. But we want to pray with you. So we're going to do that now in the knowledge that even at our darkest moments, Christ has not abandoned us and they are producing eternal weights of glory in us.